Binge Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. Did you know about Universal Orlando Resort hotels? When you stay in Universal, it's just a hop between the parks, city walk, and your room. And every morning, you can breeze into one of three amazing theme parks an hour before other guests. Plus, guests staying at select on-site hotels can skip the regular lines at most popular attractions with free Universal Express Unlimited to Universal Studios Florida and Universal Islands of Adventure. Go to www.universalorlando.com to book your stay today. Binge Mode is also brought to you by Locker Room by Lids at Macy's. Yes. Locker Room by Lids at Macy's. It's like having a lid store in the middle of a Macy's. Perfect shopping experiences to outfit the entire family for your favorite sports team's headwear and apparel. Locker Room by Lids at Macy's yes. is your soccer international football headquarters for jerseys, apparel, and more. The global sporting event of the year is upon us. Represent your country in style at Locker Room by Lids at Macy's. Nike jerseys for Brazil and Portugal, Adidas jerseys for Mexico, Argentina, and Germany are all available. Macy's.com slash Lids is your one stop to represent your team and your style for the largest sporting event in the world. Warning! Binge mode contains adult content. In these chapters, there is a mention of Fred and George, our favorite redheaded twins, Attempting, attempting to send Harry Potter a toilet seat. What are those rascals doing in the toilets, you might ask? I might ask myself the same thing. Probably getting laid. That's what I'm, saying. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. Let's <laughs> definitely. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know whether or not Mars is bright tonight, please proceed with extreme caution. And now... But that means he and his wife will die, won't they? They have enough elixir stored to set their affairs in order, and then, yes, they will die. Dumbledore smiled at the look of amazement on Harry's face. (laughs) To one as young as you, I'm sure it seems incredible. But to Nicholas and Perinelle, it really is like going to bed after a very, very long day. After all, to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. It's a great website. <laughs> Joining me today. Yes. Now that he's finished mustering the courage to give Birdie Bots every flavor beans a try after all these years. Oh, yak saliva. <laughs> it's Ringer staff writer, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. I think I'll be safe with a nice toffee, don't you? Alas, earwax. At least it's hot, but guys, it's not quite the hottest, which means. That binge mode Harry Potter, where we explore every facet, every nook, every cranny of the Harry Potter universe is finally underway. Be you centaur or unicorn, three-headed dog or troll or half-giant, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us, five points and stars only. For binge mode, please also follow us on Twitter, at binge underscore mode, aka the underscore, and join our Facebook group which is only for binge mode fans, which is a great place 
to swap nettle wine pairing suggestions. Mm. On yesterday's episode of Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how longing defines chapters 11 through 14 of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And on today's episode, we are diving deep into chapters 15 through 17, the climax and conclusion of Stone. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. While those three chapters are going to be our primary focus on this episode, we will be going deep on details from all seven books and the wider Potter canon, taking the entire series into account from the moment the flute hits our lips. So watch for snares and sniff for trolls. Ooh. Because it's time to head through the trap door. Mal. Yeah. What happened down in the dungeons between you and Professor Quirrell is a complete secret. <laughs> Just you, uh. Professor Quirrell, and Dumbledore. That's it. That's the only people that know about it. So naturally, the whole school knows. Still, in case anyone failed to hear, let's offer up a brief. <laughs> That's the funniest part yet. That it's brief. A brief refresher, <laughs> relatively speaking, about what actually happened in the final three chapters of the wonderful Sorcerer's Stone by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine of plot, the Hogwarts Express. Choo-choo! Train leaving the station. Chapter 15. Ooh. The Forbidden Forest. Right. Filch! Filch. Okay. Delivers Harry and Hermione to Professor McGonagall for punishment. And guess what? Our girl might have lost a bet recently. Who can say? She is livid. Worse, Neville who was trying to warn Harry about Malfoy, got caught too. McGonagall thinks that Harry lied about the dragon just to get Malfoy in trouble. Guys? Yes. The word disgusted is used. She's, I'm disgusted. <laughs> she dings Gryffindor 150 big ones. 50 points apiece for Harry, Hermione, yeah. and Neville. It's a long con to <laughs> throw people off the scent of what she's doing on the Quidditch pitch. <laughs> Behind the scenes. Some real dollar bill stern stuff here. Gryffindor goes to the bottom of the table for the house cup, and all the students, except the reviled Slytherins, are furious at Harry. Shouts to all you Slytherins out there. But that's not all. Harry, Hermione, Neville, and Malfoy are given detention with Filch, who leads them to Hagrid's hut. Guys, how bad could it be? We're going to Hagrid's. Well, here's the thing. We're going in the Forbidden Forest. It's pretty bad. Something in there has been killing unicorns. Hagrid splits the party up to search for an injured unicorn following a silvery blood trail through the night. And eventually, Harry and Malfoy find the unicorn and see something hooded crawl out of the brush to drink its very blood. Harry screams as pain arcs through his scar. He's rescued by Ferenz, a centaur, who tells him that Voldemort has been using unicorn blood to try and sustain his tenuous hold on life. Mmm, delicious. Chapter 16, Through the Trap Door. Dead unicorns. Assassination attempts, mean teachers, Quidditch, the House Cup, the Dark Lord trying to return by stealing the Sorcerer's Stone. And oh yeah, exams. Still at school. Hey guys, there is schoolwork. (laughs) Harry's nightmares have grown more intense, and he's also dealing with constant pain in his scar. He also can't shake the feeling that there's something he should be figuring out. Then it comes to him. The suspicious Ah. circumstances by which Hagrid attained a dragon egg. Harry, Ron, and Hermione go to see Hagrid, and Hagrid tells him about the hooded stranger from whom he won the egg. Hagrid remembers that he told the man about (laughs) Fluffy's weakness. The trio decides to tell Dumbledore, it's time. No more excuses, no more bullshit. Gotta go find the headmaster. On their way, they run into McGonagall, who tells them that Dumbledore is in London at the Ministry of Magic, 
and McGonagall assures them that the stone is well protected. But our heroes are unconvinced and charge ahead. Late at night, the three are just heading out of the common room when Neville tries to stop them from leaving. But Hermione hits him with the Petrificus Totalis spell, locks him up, drops him to the ground. They sneak up to Fluffy. Harry plays the flute that Hagrid gave him at Christmas, putting the beast to sleep, and down into the trapdoor they go. They encounter magical obstacles, which we will talk about in detail later, and they overcome them. With Ron unconscious, Hermione goes to get help. Harry goes on to the final task alone to keep Snape from getting the stone. But when he gets to the final room, somebody is already there, and it's... Quirrell! Chapter 17, The Man with Two Faces. Quirrell, not Snape? Yep, it was Quirrell who tried to throw Harry from his broom. Snape, it turns out, had been trying to save Harry's life all year. Whoops. Quirrell binds Harry and then turns to regard... Oh, is that the mirror of Erised? It certainly is. Hmm, interesting that Harry had encountered this previously. Quirrell believes that the mirror is the key to retrieving the Sorcerer's Stone, and all the while, Quirrell's helpfully laying out it's his great stuff. plot. Need that. <laughs> Graciously explaining... Thank you. <laughs> ...that he is Voldemort's servant. Quickly... He becomes frustrated by the puzzle of the mirror and calls out for help. A high voice, ice cold, answers, telling Quirrell, Use the boy. Quirrell places Harry in front of the mirror, and Harry sees the stone in the reflection and feels it drop into his pocket. Quirrell asks what he sees. Harry lies. The high voice knows that he has lied and demands to see Harry. Quirrell unwraps his turban, revealing a face. Ugh where the back of his head should have been. It's Voldemort, looking bad. He demands that Harry give him the stone. Quirrell and Harry struggle. Something about the touch of Harry's skin causes Quirrell's skin to burn and blister. Voldemort tells Quirrell to kill him. Kill Harry, kill him, kill him, kill him. Harry knows he must not let go of Quirrell, and so he grabs on for his very life, and then darkness. Three days later, Harry wakes in Madame Pomfrey's hospital wing. Dumbledore is watching over him. Dumbledore explains that he's consulted with Nicholas Flamel, good old Nicky, and that they have decided together to destroy the stone. Harry wants to know more. He asks about his parents, and Dumbledore kind of answers, at least in broad strokes, explaining that Lily's sacrifice imbued Harry's very skin with powerful protection. That is why Quirrell could not bear to touch him. Love. Dumbledore goes on to explain how he hid the stone in the mirror, about Snape's history with James, and, and other crucial information that we will discuss more at length soon. The end-of-year feast, Dumbledore rewards Ron 50 big points for beating the chess set. Hermione gets 50 for solving the potion puzzle. Harry gets 60 for fighting with Quirrell and Voldemort. Neville gets 10 for trying to stop Ron, Hermione, and Harry from doing all that stuff. Gryffindor wins the House Cup. Harry packs up at King's Cross, bids farewell to his friends, Jokes about the Dursleys not knowing that he is now a wizard and can't do magic at home outside of the grounds of Hogwarts. And we move on until next fall. Jason. Yes. Takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to our enemies. It's true. But just as much to stand up to our friends yes. and fellow podcast hosts. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 15 through 17 of Sorcerer's Stone is courage. Chapter 15, The Forbidden Forest. Courage is impossible without fear. We're reminded of one of our favorite bits of dialogue from A Song of Ice and Fire in Game of Thrones when talking about the theme of these chapters. Bram, Love this. 
says to his father, Ned. Can a man still be brave if he's afraid, Ned? That is the only time a man can be brave in the show, Rob recounts this to Lisa, but the premise still holds courage, comes from accepting that fear exists and grappling with it, not denying it. To not feel fear when it's appropriate to feel fear is foolishness. It's not bravery. And here, J.K.'s craft is on display in the way that she ratchets up the suspense and the feeling of danger, which eventually gives way to outright fear for our characters. There's Harry's mad scramble to assemble a cogent and believable defense at being at the astronomy tower in the middle of the night. Just like the way she gives you the scene, Hermione trembling. Then that image of all these different alibis running around in a circle in Harry's brain. What are they going to do? What are they? And then finally, the very important fact, the cloak gone. This sequence also forces us to consider how our actions, and for the characters, their actions, inform how courage manifests in other people. How do the decisions we make change the way other people feel and behave? It's not just that Harry and Hermione got caught. It's that Neville got caught trying to warn them, and that McGonagall then goes on to, in essence, paint Neville as a dunce, as collateral damage in what she thinks is their attempt to prank Malfoy from the book. Poor, blundering Neville. (laughs) So sad. Poor, blundering Neville. Harry knew what it must have cost him to try and find them in the dark, to warn them. It doesn't actually matter that McGonagall's theory about this whole series of events is wrong. It matters that Neville, who is already doubting his merits at his worth as a Gryffindor, is in this moment of uncommon courage made to feel a fool. It's really one of the small but early miracles of the series that this was not a monumental setback for Neville, that he actually recovered from this. And later on in this chapter— Harry, upon seeing red sparks, will say out loud, I don't care if Malfoy has, meaning gotten hurt, Hermione expresses fear. But if something's got Neville, it's our fault he's here in the first place. And so here in this chapter really begins Harry's tendency to worry about other people getting hurt emotionally, physically, in any way because of something that he did. And then— in turn, of him feeling compelled to act to protect them, sometimes courageously, sometimes foolishly, sometimes a combination of the two. In the wake of uh, Professor McGee's 150-point deduction, 150, Harry's fellow Gryffindor. We have a note here on the side from we're, Isaac we're gonna talk Lee, about this our in a producer, Harry's- Minerva McGallion. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Isaac. I like it. I like it a lot. Harry's fellow Griffs, including Oliver Wood and the Quidditch team, turn their backs on him Mass, and so do the Ravenclaws and the Hufflepuffs, who just do not want to see Slytherin win. Only Ron stood by him, says the book. This is Harry's first taste of what will become an all-too-common sensation for him, that kind of seesawing between being the favored chosen one and a pariah, a danger, a boy crying wolf. Harry will experience this in Chamber when people realize he speaks Parseltongue and Goblet, when people, including Ron, think he somehow cheated his way into being the fourth champion. In order, when the Ministry and so many others insist he's lying about Voldemort's return. In Hallows, when the Ministry labels him undesirable number one. Hermione and Neville, by the way, ostracized too. Our heroes are isolated. And the tension here is really wonderful. Harry, Ron, and Hermione think that only they understand that something consequential is afoot here at Hogwarts. But no one will listen to them. And if they listen... They absolutely do not believe them. And if they even try to bring it up again, they might get expelled. What to do? Harry, fearful for his Hogwarts career, swears to himself, quote, not to meddle in things that weren't his business from now on. 
he'd had it with sneaking around and spying. And this resolution is put to the test about a page later when he overhears Quirrell, clearly afraid, speaking with someone. No, no, not again, please. Clearly the final move to swipe the stone is in motion. Something must be done. But not quite yet, because first, detention. Harry, Hermione, Neville, Malfoy, meet Filch at the entrance. In in a sense, really a well-timed dragon bite for Ron. Right. You know? Yeah. (laughs) To this point, the caretaker, and ah, what a label for Filch. Among our most caring. Yes, certainly (laughs) is a caring man. Has been a figure of annoyance, you know, more Keystone Cop than anything. And now we get a peek into his psyche and boy, is it dark. I'd say really we'd say the only person in life or literature who could properly appreciate it would be uh, Frey and how fitting. Filch. Hard work and pain are the best teachers if you ask me. It's a pity they let the old punishments die out, hang you by your wrists from the ceiling for a few days. I've got the chains still in my office. Keep them well-oiled in case they're ever needed. What could await our heroes in the forest? The tension is building. And in the darkness, Filch leads the students to Hagrid's hut. For a moment, the tension abates. Again, wonderful technique here from J.K.R. From the book, Harry's heart rose. If they were going to be working with Hagrid, it wouldn't be so bad. That ray of hope is quickly extinguished. Filch tells them where they're going, the forbidden forest. Fear now is often a reaction to things that we don't know, the unknown, the darkness. And the forest gloom hides many, many, many things from the book. At this, Neville let out a little moan and Malfoy stopped dead in his tracks. The forest, he repeated, and he didn't sound quite as cool as usual. We can't go in there at night. There's all sorts of things in there. Werewolves, I heard. Malfoy's reaction to being in the forest stands in contrast to Harry's. Malfoy is afraid and unabashedly so. He demands to walk with Fang, thinking Hagrid's boarhound with the long teeth will protect him, unfortunately. Fang is a coward, per Hagrid. (laughs) When Hagrid tells them about the dead unicorn he found last Wednesday and the injured one that they'll be looking for on this night, the description of Malfoy reads, And what if whatever hurt the unicorn finds us first, said Malfoy, unable to keep the fear out of his voice. And... Recall here what Dumbledore will come to say to Harry much later in the cave in Half-Blood Prince. Quote, there is nothing to be feared from a body, Harry, any more than there is anything to be feared from the darkness. Lord Voldemort, who, of course, secretly fears both, disagrees. But once again, he reveals his own lack of wisdom. It is the unknown we fear when we look upon death and darkness. Nothing more. Malfoy is afraid in part because he cannot Except the unknown. He cannot face it. He distrusts anything that he perceives as foreign. Hagrid, the forest, the noises and the creatures that the forest harbors. Harry's courage, in stark contrast, is fueled by an innate curiosity. He has a real sincere desire to explore, but also it's fueled by the presence of the familiar. Hagrid, in this case. Because for Harry at this point, friends mean safety. That is both an idea that in time, also in Half-Blood Prince, he will come to view as a harmful illusion that he needs to cast aside, and also the kind of bone-deep belief that makes Harry who he is. Dark things lurk in this forest. After the incident with the Red Sparks, Hagrid takes Hermione and Neville and sends Harry and Fang off with Malfoy, Hagrid says. I'm sorry, but he'll have a harder time frightening you, and we've got to get this done. Whispers that to Harry when Harry is slightly aggrieved at having to leave Hagrid's side. Harry's bravery stands out in the presence of fear, then. There are also plenty of other things, including centaurs, Ronan and Bane, who both cryptically say, Mars is bright tonight. 
Hagrid's frustrated. Never, said Hagrid irritably. Try and get a straight answer out of a centaur. But the statements give Harry and the readers that sense of foreboding, of larger machinations moving just beyond our vision, things approaching that we don't know about. In ancient Rome, Mars was the god of war, and that legend seeps into the books as well. In order, the centaur Ferenz will refer to Mars as the bringer of battle, a harbinger of war, Ferenz says. In the past decade, the indications have been that wizard kind is living through nothing more than a brief calm between two wars. Mars, bringer of battle, shines brightly above us, suggesting that the fight must break out again soon. So right here, mere months into Harry's re-entrance into the wizarding world for the first time since he was a baby, war is already foretold. And when Hagrid asks Ronan if he's seen anything regarding the injured unicorn, Ronan says, Always the innocent are the first victims. So it has been for ages past. So it is now. This is terrifying to hear. It's a statement about the poor unicorn, sure. It is, we believe, and many Harry Potter fans believe, a prophecy of sorts about Cedric's eventual death in the graveyard where Voldemort will return, foreshadowing the tragedy of Cedric, an innocent who didn't need to be there, being so recklessly, callously cast aside. And it is also just an unambiguously terrifying thing, especially in light of Hagrid's the know things commentary about the centaurs for an 11 year old boy to hear in the middle of the night in a dark and frightful place. And yet Harry plows on. They come upon the unicorn dead. Then creeping out of that gloom, like a waking nightmare, the hooded figure slurping the blood from the wound in the unicorn side. Malfoy flees immediately screaming, leaving Harry unprotected. His cowardice absolutely on full display. Harry is paralyzed by fear. And this is important. Harry's courage has to be believable. There's not a world in which an 11-year-old boy who's only beginning to understand the world and his place in it would see what he is seeing and not be overtaken by fear. It would not occur to Harry to flee and leave others in peril, but it's not like he's going to be immune to the terrible things he sees. He feels these things keenly, and it's his ability to overcome them in the most pressure-filled moments that will eventually set him apart and that sets him apart now. This figure, this hooded figure, its face smeared with blood, just having a snack, you know, looks at Harry. And this pain, this searing, inescapable pain splits his scar. A third centaur, Ferenc, arrives, charges at this figure and saves Harry, whisks him away. When Bane and Ronan return and they see that Ferenc has allowed Harry on his back, quote, like a common mule, they are irate. But Ferenc is steadfast, showing courage of his own. He has no regrets. He says, this is the Potter boy. The quicker he leaves this forest, the better. What have you been telling him, growled Bane? Remember, friends, we are sworn not to set ourselves against the heavens. Have we not read what is to come in the movements of the planets? Imagine hearing this. Imagine being Harry and witnessing this exchange, sitting there, after seeing what Harry has just seen and hearing those vague but unsettling Mars's bright tonight declarations earlier, and then having to listen to this exchange that even the most obtuse observer would be able to tell basically boils down to, hey, we've seen that this kid is bound for death and despair. You know, to quote the Dothraki, it is known. That is basically what they are saying. His fate is sealed. His destiny is written in the heavens. This is long before we will learn about the prophecy. 
And yet this is an early sign of what many perceive as the fate that awaits Harry, this idea that his destiny is forged, his choices be damned. And he has to muster the courage to fight against that when so many people think that he is a marked man. And in some ways he is. Friends tells Harry unicorn blood's life-sustaining properties end, also the unthinkable cost associated with obtaining it. Friends says, the blood of a unicorn will keep you alive, even if you're an inch from death, but at a terrible price. You have slain something pure and defenseless to save yourself, and you will have but a half-life, a cursed life. You can't be courageous if you have nothing to lose. You can only be reckless, suicidal, unmoored. And Harry wonders who could be so desperate, Francis says. Can you think of nobody who's waited years to return to power, who has clung to life, awaiting their chance? Can you? Come on. Who has it got to be? Come on. (laughs) Harry finds himself thinking back to Hagrid's comments from earlier in Stone from the book. Some say he died. God's well up, in my opinion. Don't know if he had enough human left in him to die. Horcrux hints here. By the way, what is tethering Voldemort to life? What would someone have done to himself to be at the point where the cost of slaying a unicorn is worth not just worth paying, but a minor cost right. when when added to what's Easy already choice. been paid? You know, it's the sunk cost fallacy only if it's your soul you're paying in. And Ferenz wishes him luck, which is kind. He's going to yeah. need it and offers these parting words. The planets have been read wrongly before now, even by centaurs. I hope this is one of those times. The centaur stuff, particularly the Ferenc stuff in this chapter, is just so rich with foreshadowing and foreboding. And there are so many clues to decipher and also so many messages about that eternal battle between choice and destiny. Do our choices matter? Well, of course, that's what this story is all about. And so that line from Ferenc, it's an ember of hope for Harry. His fate isn't set. It doesn't have to be. It's what he makes of it. If he can just find the courage to try to change it, to try to do something, to try to act. And one thing that'll help him act, quote, but the night's surprises weren't over. When Harry pulled back his sheets, he found his invisibility cloak folded neatly underneath them. There was a note pinned to it, just in case. Chapter 16, Through the Trap Door. Now, Harry is wrong about Snape's involvement. Despite that, he has gained a great deal of enlightenment and knowledge about what is actually happening. He knows that Voldemort is here, close by, trying to claw his way back into the world. This is terrifying stuff. It is so terrifying, in fact, that as we'll see over the course of the series, many people who were in positions where they could have done something about this will deny it even as the evidence of the Dark Lord's return becomes incontrovertible. Even the Minister of Magic himself will deny Voldemort's return at the end of Goblet and throughout order until he's literally staring in the Dark Lord's face. Harry's courage has real stakes. Someone has to be the first to believe. Someone has to be the first to speak up. It would be easier, far easier, to listen to what everybody is telling him and to simply quit than pursue a seemingly harebrained (laughs) scheme to protect the stone. They're 11, guys. The pressure of exams and the stern warnings from Snape and McGonagall haven't faded, and neither has the pain in Harry's scar. From the book, I think it's a warning. It means danger is coming, a warning, a portent, a magnet calling to its other parts, a horcrux that will test and corrupt Harry's courage time and time again. That courage is often inextricably linked with his determination. He cannot stop thinking about Snape and Voldemort, the stone and its protections. And suddenly this gnawing sensation that he hasn't been able to shake solidifies for him. Isn't it weird 
that Hagrid wanted a dragon's egg more than anything in the world. What a coinky dink. And a stranger just so happens to give him one at the exact moment when Hagrid is in possession of crucial, tightly guarded information about Fluffy. Sure enough, Hagrid says, so I told him, Fluffy's a piece of cake if you know how to calm him down. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> just play him a bit of music and he'll go straight off to sleep. It's settled in their minds once they hear this. The stranger was either Snape or Voldemort. Had to be, right? Had right. to be. No other possibilities. And now that person will know how to get past Fluffy. It's time to go to Dumbledore, a decision that while long overdue, still, we should say, requires a certain amount of courage in its own right. Because going to Dumbledore in this case basically boils down to saying, Sir, we figured out what you couldn't. The Dark Lord is in your castle and one of your teachers is helping him. Here's how. That's not an easy thing to have to talk yourself into doing. And then when McGonagall tells him that Dumbledore is gone, Harry has to tap into his courage again because he has to then tell the woman who has told him more than anyone else over the course of the school year to stop meddling that he's meddled some more. And he says, it's about the Sorcerer's Stone. Now, when my good girl... Medallion brushes them off, assuring them that the stone is too well protected to be stolen. Guys, we got our top teachers working on this. Harry becomes certain that the theft attempt will take place that night. The summons from the ministry, he's sure, is a ruse to get Dumbledore off the grounds. Hermione and Ron begin to lose heart. Harry's resolve never wavers from the book. Losing points doesn't matter anymore, can't you see? Do you think he'll leave you and your families alone if Gryffindor wins the House Cup? Harry alone understands the stakes. Now, look at this. There's this great little bit of writing. It's just a line where J.K. says, the other two stared at him. He was pale and his eyes were glittering. Very, very rare that you see Harry through the eyes of other people in this story. Ever since the first few chapters of this book, where the perspective moves from the Dursleys inward to Harry's. Very, very rare, but she does it here. And it's a great moment because you understand that Harry is extremely serious. You get to watch him make this speech to you. And it's just a great bit of writing from JK. She's a legend. Ron and Hermione, to their credit, they do understand the stakes of friendship. And once Harry makes this speech, it never occurs to them to let him go it alone. And so the three of them set off. And as they're trying to exit the common room, they are faced with someone else's courage. Neville's. They're looking for Trevor, as one does, and he does not want them to leave. He does not want them to get Gryffindor in trouble again. And so he stands up to them. He says, you were the one who told me to stand up to people. This is classic Ron here. Yes, but not to us, said Ron in exasperation. And eventually Hermione has no choice, or thinks she has no choice, but to curse Neville. Hits him with the full body behind Petrificus Totalis, and they go onward. But we have to talk about this moment, because even though Neville's actions did not actually result in what he was seeking, did not actually prevent the trio from leaving, it doesn't in any way diminish the strength of that act. As Dumbledore will reinforce when he awards Neville points at the farewell feast, Neville has spent the bulk of this book feeling like he wasn't good enough, wasn't brave enough to be in Gryffindor. And he stood up here, not to people that he dislikes, but to people he actually admires. And now a brief break for a word from one of our sponsors. So you just finished watching a Netflix series like Wild Wild Country or Evil Genius. Now that that's over, can't stop thinking about the show. Of course, that would stick with you. You need more of that kind of story. 
you need You Can't Make This Up, the new podcast from Netflix about true stories that sound too crazy to be real. Each episode features conversations between podcasters, journalists, comedians, and the people who made some of your favorite Netflix shows, including Wild Wild Country, which follows the sex cult that took over a small Oregon town. And Evil Genius, the unbelievable account of a pizza delivery man who robbed a bank with a bomb around his neck. They'll give an exclusive look inside their process, explore stories they left out, answer your burning questions, and more. Plus, they will talk about the upcoming season of Last Chance You, the Academy Award-winning series Icarus, and the mouth-wateringly good Chef's Table. You Can't Make This Up is available on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or preferred podcast destination. Go listen to, subscribe, and review You Can't Make This Up Now. And now back to Binge Mode. At Fluffy's door, already ajar, Harry tries to give the others a way out from the book. If you want to go back, I won't blame you, he said. You can take the cloak. I won't need it now. Don't be stupid, said Ron. We're coming, said Hermione. This is a bond that will never be undone. A moment of shared courage and unity. They enter and begin to face the obstacles. Number one, Fluffy. The dog is sniffing the air. The harp that had been used to quiet him by whoever had come first, now off. Harry plays his flute. Fluffy dozes off again. Ron opens the trap door. The unknown requires a certain type of courage, a certain type of faith, really. Harry hands off the flute to Hermione and looks down. There's no sign of the bottom. He tells Ron that if anything happens to them, he shouldn't follow, but should send Hedwig to Dumbledore. Second task, Devil Snare. This is Sprout's enchantment. Harry falls on something soft, tells them it's a safe landing, you guys can jump. And when they do, Ron says, lucky this plant thing's here, really. Lucky, shrieked Hermione, look at you both. This plant is twisting around all of them, and Hermione had freed herself before it gripped her, but Harry and Ron, not so much. And Hermione identifies it as Devil Snare, tells them to stop moving. But she stumbles. She can't remember. This is so unlike Hermione to panic, to not be able to grasp the information that they need. Have you gone mad, Ron bellowed? Are you a witch or not? I love that. <laughs> there will be a callback to this moment in Deathly Hallows when Hermione turns this around to Ron. Very, very charming. This is a funny moment, but it is also a good reminder that maintaining courage in the face of terrifying, strange things that you have never confronted or had cause to confront in your life it's no small feat. Chamber three, the flying keys uh, by Professor Flitwick. They come to a brilliantly lit chamber full of what appear to be small, jewel bright birds. And there's a heavy wooden door on the other side. The door will not brudge. And they realize the birds are keys. There are broomsticks in the room too from the book. Not for nothing though was Harry the youngest seeker in a century. He had a knack for spotting things other people didn't. He notices a large silver key with an already bent wing as if already been caught and shoved into the door. Just because the task suits his skill doesn't minimize the courage it took to grasp that broomstick in the first place without knowing what would happen when he did. Fourth task, the transfigured chess set. This is McGonagall's enchantment. So far, they have gotten through these tasks either behind Harry's lead or as a group. Now, it's time for Ron and Hermione to be the lead knight. In Ron's case, literally. The magical obstacles that have been installed by the Hogwarts staff give each member of our Troika an opportunity to show their courage. And Ron, who to this point in the story has been known as, you know, a mixture of comic relief and Harry's sidekick friend and Harry's gateway into the wizarding world, gets to flex his skills 
specifically his chess skills. The towering chessmen had no faces. This is how this is described. And that description really reinforces the idea and the threat of the unknown. How can you understand something that you can't really see? Also, always reminds me of the Death Eater Mm. masks, something hidden and obscured. Ron is the one who deduces that they will have to play their way across. Now, don't be offended or anything, Ron says, but neither of you are that good at chess. This is Ron's moment. This is his skill, his area of superiority, his moment to shine. After a life of being outdone by his siblings in a first year at school where he's been overshadowed by his more famous and more gifted best friends, they ask him, they turn to him for guidance and for leadership. Where should we go? He tells them, Harry replaces a bishop, the holy figure, right? Hermione replaces a rook, the castle, a protective symbol. Ron replaces a knight, the figure on the board most closely aligned with the values of Gryffindor House. Bravery, chivalry. This is the moment when Ron, who worried that he'd be the first in his family not to make the house, emerges as a true Gryffindor in his own right, not just in relation to Harry. From the book, the White Queen turned her blank face toward him, Yes, said Ron softly. It's the only way. I've got to be taken. No, Harry and Hermione both shout. That's chess, snapped Ron. You got to make some sacrifices. Incredible shit from Ron, who's showing steel here that, frankly, we did not know that he had until this very moment. And that's also life, by the way. Ron steps forward, knowing full well what lies in store for him. And he is afraid. But his fear is tempered by his belief in his friends and their cause and his own courage, which they've helped him find. Number five, the troll, which is already knocked out. Number six, The Potions Riddle by Snape. Interesting idea that something subtle or masked can't be scary. This notion will change over time with our story as we progress in our story, of course. Here, Hermione gets her chance to display her skills and her courage. And it's useful to think about the stakes for Hermione beyond the obvious threat to life and limb that we've seen so far. On the one hand, she is clearly the most capable of the three, right? That drive, though, to become competent, capable, smart, comes from a desire to transcend her muggle upbringing, to prove that she's a worthy witch. She's afraid, truly afraid of only one thing, right? Failing. Ron is a goofball, but also a pureblood from an established wizarding family. Harry, all other issues aside, is the chosen one, literally the chosen one, a celebrity, a budding Quidditch star, and the child of a notable wizarding couple. Hermione has no such advantages, no such privileges. All she has is her mind and her abilities. And it's no wonder that Hermione is so concerned about getting into trouble. If she's out of Hogwarts, what does she have? Just being friends with these rascals like Harry and Ron takes courage. When they step over the threshold, a purple fire springs to life behind them and a black fire shoots up in the doorway ahead, trapping them. Hermione spots a piece of paper next to the bottles, a riddle containing all the clues they'll need to solve the task. And we won't read the whole thing, but We will just say that one of the marks of a true literary genius is that when the riddles and songs and poems and other creations that are supposed to exist in the world that the author of our story also has to create are as good as our story itself. And this riddle is no exception. It is masterful. Hermione notes the brilliance of this enchantment. And this is, though we, you know, don't fully have clarity about Snape until the entire series is concluded, when you look back during the course of a reread, this is one of those moments where you really appreciate what kind of unconventional thinker he was. This isn't magic. It's logic. Well, now you could certainly argue that logic is a form of magic in its own right, but point taken, Hermione. And naturally, our girl cracks the code. The smallest bottle will lead on. 
and there's only enough for one drinker, the far right will lead back. Harry tells her to drink that and go help Ron. Send Hedwig to Dumbledore. Harry and Hermione then share a tender and very potent moment where she tells him that he is a great wizard. And he says, I'm not as good as you. She says, me, books and cleverness, there are more important things, friendship and bravery. This story puts a premium on bravery. Harry alone goes to confront Snape. In the span of less than one school year, Harry has transitioned from a life of anonymity and neglect to somehow, someway being on the front lines of a battle between darkness and light that's already cost the lives of his parents and may well take his own. Yet he goes forward, though certainly not without fear, from the book. He was on the other side in the last chamber. There was already someone there, but it wasn't Snape. It wasn't even Voldemort. Dun, dun, dun. Chapter 17, The Man with Two Faces. It's Quirrell! Harry's shocked. Shocked! He was so sure that he would be facing Snape. Notably, however, Quirrell is not shocked to see Harry. Harry's bravery and his recklessness, too, are always on display for everyone to see. Quirrell, and of course, by extension, Voldemort, they knew that Harry would try to intervene. But Harry's certainty... An important part of what makes him courageous is shaken by what he's witnessing, by what he's just discovered. Saying, but I thought, Snape, Harry never allowed himself to doubt Snape. And despite in this moment at the end of this book realizing he was wrong, moving forward in the future, that same prejudice against Snape will creep back in time and time again. Quirrell summons ropes to bind Harry. He then proceeds, quite helpfully, it must be said, to tell the young chosen one basically everything. How it was he who tried to kill him during the Quidditch match and how Snape had himself appointed referee to protect Harry. How it was he who set the troll loose in Hogwarts. Quirrell's verbal diarrhea provides some of our earliest and most formative insight into what Snape sacrificed for Harry, what courage he showed. Snape tried to keep Harry on his broom. He insisted on refing the next match to keep an eye on Harry. And he went to the third floor to try and catch Quirrell on the night of the Halloween troll attack. Harry ever courageous keeps his wits. When Quirrell tells Harry to be quiet so that he can concentrate on the mirror, Harry realizes what the final task is. Seven, the mirror, Dumbledore. He knows instinctually and logically because it's in his gut and his soul and because Dumbledore has subtly prepared him for this, that he has to keep Quirrell talking, keep him distracted so the turban teacher can't give the mirror his full attention. Quirrell shares more consequential information with Harry. First, that Snape... May not have tried to kill Harry, but he actually does hate him. That's legit. And also, loathed Harry's father. And second, and this is really the big one, Voldemort, in a form he will soon see for himself, is here at the school from the book. He is with me wherever I go, said Quirrell quietly. I met him when I traveled around the world, a foolish young man I was then, full of ridiculous ideas about good and evil. Lord Voldemort showed me how wrong I was. There is no good and evil. There is only power and those too weak to seek it. And while JK hammer lines. Yeah. While JKR will go to great lengths over the course of these seven books to reject the good evil binary, think of Sirius's key line in order. Quote, the world isn't split into good people and death eaters. Think of Snape's entire character. Think of everything we've come to learn about Dumbledore's past. Harry will have to learn this. And yet the courage he needs to reject the power idea in this moment is supreme. Harry learns that Quirrell was the one who tried to rob Gringotts, and he's furious at himself for not having connected these dots. You know, hindsight. Quirrell was there in Diagon Alley the same day. Harry is starting to hold himself to an impossible standard, and that standard will be 
on the one hand, a source of great courage for him moving forward, but on the other hand, something that often leads him to act in short-sighted, often dangerous fashion. But even after these shocking reveals are washing over him, Harry remains remarkably composed, certainly composed enough to formulate a plan. Quote, what I want more than anything else in the world at the moment, he thought, is to find the stone before Quirrell does. So if I look in the mirror, I should see myself finding it. Now, this is an interesting one just in terms of the magic at play here, because, you know, theoretically, the magic of the mirror should work for Quirrell that way, too. You know, he wants the stone, so he should look at the mirror and see himself getting it. This is what Quirrell is speaking aloud into the room. Why is it not showing me what I need? Think about the room of requirement and how that will work. Malfoy, when Harry realizes that Malfoy is in there, Harry can't get in. But... Harry, Malfoy, Trelawney, others, they're all able to access the room to hide things when they make the certain request of it. The room ultimately obliges. You know, the room will betray the person in it if the request is specific enough. The mirror does not behave this way because the mirror is Dumbledore's enchantment and it ensures that only somebody pure of heart will be able to get the stone. This is something that Dumbledore will go on to explain to Harry later on in this chapter in the hospital wing. How does this magic work? Well, we get that fleeting explanation from Dumbledore. We don't get a ton else. It's one of the rare instances in the series where we are not very specifically shown how the magic works and are instead sort of asked to accept an idea, which is, on the one hand, Dumbledore's brilliance, trumping all else, and on the other, that the mirror and that Dumbledore, in programming it, chose to value, in essence, character above all else. In other words, that it chose to value Harry. Harry hears a voice say, use the boy, use the boy. Coral places Harry in front of the mirror, and therein, Harry sees himself smiling, holding the stone, and he feels that object dropped into his own pocket. Coral asks him what he sees, and Harry calls on his courage again, and Ron's earlier mirror vision and lies, telling him that, oh, uh, I see myself winning the House Cup for Gryffindor. Things aren't moving quickly enough for Coral's master, so he decides to involve himself directly. Voldemort says, let me speak to him face to face. Quirrell, master, you are not strong enough, Voldemort. I have strength enough for this. And Quirrell unwraps his turban. And what Harry sees there is a nightmare. Quote, where there should have been a back to Quirrell's head, there was a face, the most terrible face Harry had ever seen. It was chalk white with glaring red eyes and slits for nostrils like a snake. We see, as we will time and time again, that Voldemort possesses no true courage. His current form is parasitic a determination to pursue an end regardless of the means, regardless of the cost. See what I have become, the face said, mere shadow and vapor. I have form only when I can share another's body, but there have always been those willing to let me into their hearts and minds. Unicorn blood has strengthened me these past weeks. You saw faithful Quirrell drinking it for me in the forest, and once I have the elixir of life, I will be able to create a body of my own now. Why don't you give me that stone in your pocket? Somehow after all this, it has gotten worse. Voldemort knows that Harry has the stone, and we see how much we should fear Voldemort. He's a shadow, but he knows the mirror and Harry are the keys, that Harry is lying and that he has the stone. This is power. He makes Harry an offer. Give over the stone and join me or die the way your parents did. Quote, begging me for mercy. And those words, that lie, cruel and mocking and belittling James and Lily's legacy, pushes Harry over the edge. His Anger, righteous and fierce, boils over. Liar, Harry shouts. Voldemort underestimates Harry, just as he did all those years ago when Harry was a baby and he didn't figure out what was really at play, just as he will time and time again in the future. But even in Voldemort's twisted evil mind, 
though he doesn't see its value, he does recognize courage when he sees it. He says to Harry, quote, how touching. (laughs) I always value bravery. Yes, boy, your parents were brave. I killed your father first and he put up a courageous fight, but your mother needn't have died. She was trying to protect you. Now give me the stone unless you want her to have died in vain. Much more in a few minutes on this immensely crucial information that Voldemort just handed over because he doesn't realize that it's important. When Quirrell grabs Harry's wrist, Potter's scar bursts out in pain, but Quirrell cannot hold him. Quote, by instinct, Harry reached up, grabbed Quirrell's face. His face blisters too, and then Harry knew Quirrell couldn't touch him, couldn't touch his bare skin. For what reason, he knows not at this moment. But Harry knows his only chance is to keep him in pain, so he grabs his arm. The pain in Harry's head is building in turn. He hears another voice saying his name, and then he passes out. This is just base instinct. No skill, right? There's nothing here of anything that he learned over the course of his time at Hogwarts his first year. It's just raw, pure instinct to resist evil. And it's also very, very brave. And when Harry wakes, we come to learn three days later, Dumbledore is with him in the hospital, his glasses glinting above Harry. And he tells Harry that the effort involved in fending off Quirrell, protecting the stone, nearly killed Harry. And what of this stone? Well, Dumbledore tells Harry that it's been destroyed. And Harry really is struggling to process this. Quote, destroyed, said Harry blankly. But your friend, Nicholas Flamel. Oh, you know about Nicholas, said Dumbledore, sounding quite delighted. You did do the thing properly, didn't you? This is more early proof here that Dumbledore was puppeteering, that he wanted Harry to go and fight and to give Harry this chance. He tells Harry that he and Nicholas Flamel chatted and decided that this was the best course. And Harry asks, with the real charming innocence of youth, but won't they die? And here's the passage from the book. Dumbledore smiled at the look of amazement on Harry's face. To one as young as you, I'm sure it seems incredible. But to Nicholas and Perinelle, it really is like going to bed after a very, very long day. After all, to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. And this is one of the signature lines in the entire series. Getting to that place where you can say that and think that or accept hearing it when someone else says it to you requires immense clarity and courage, the kind of clarity and courage that Voldemort is incapable of possessing, that he lacks entirely. It's also the kind of clarity and courage we will come to learn over the course of the series that once upon a time, Dumbledore himself lacked. This is something Dumbledore had to really earn, had to fight to be able to believe. And that is what sets Harry apart. From the beginning, He has been willing to die to protect other people. Life, his life, has never been the thing that matters most to him, has never been the thing that he values above all else. Dumbledore found that wisdom eventually, but it took him some time. Harry starts to ask, yes, the stone is gone, but won't Voldemort try and find a way to return? He starts to say, you know who, but Dumbledore stops him. Call him Voldemort, Harry. Always use the proper name for things. Fear of a name increases fear of a thing itself. It's just interesting that Dumbledore would say this now, and yet nobody seems to listen to him over the course of the books, except for Harry. What does that message boil down to? Have courage, be brave. Don't let fear dictate the terms and call a thing what it is. That in itself is courage. That's truth. That's exactly why Voldemort fashioned the name, by the way. Dumbledore will take this even further by calling him Tom. 
And Harry will, too, when he calls him Riddle. And we get so many Horcrux clues here in this exchange. Even though Dumbledore is withholding a lot of candor, he is giving us, JKR is giving us a lot of information. Not being truly alive, he cannot be killed. That is the Horcrux foreshadowing completely. And then we get from Dumbledore one of the lessons that will define the entire series. Quote, he left Quirrell to die. He shows just as little mercy to his followers as his enemies. Nevertheless, Harry, while you may only have delayed his return to power, it will merely take someone else who is prepared to fight what seems a losing battle next time. And if he is delayed again and again, why, he may never return to power. It takes courage to maintain that level of hope in the face of relentless despair. This idea here is key for Harry Potter and A Song of Ice and Fire, two of our favorite stories alike. We have talked about this a lot before. This will be a recurring theme of our discussion. When Harry is sitting at Dumbledore's funeral in Half-Blood Prince, he thinks back to this very moment, to this very conversation, to Dumbledore telling him that he needs to find the courage to fight what seems a losing battle to keep evil at bay. Quote from Half-Blood Prince, It was important, Dumbledore said, to fight and fight again and keep fighting. For only then could evil be kept at bay, though never quite eradicated. Think about what Barrack and John say to each other before the Frozen Lake battle in Season 7, Episode 6, Beyond the Wall. Barrack says, Life. Death is the enemy, the first enemy and the last. And John says, but we all die, Barrack. The enemy always wins, and we still need to fight him. That's all I know. You and I won't find much joy while we're here, but we can keep others alive. We can defend those who can't defend themselves. When Harry finally gets to see his parents' graves in Deathly Hallows, he sees the inscription, quote, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Again and again, this theme. This is the hero's burden. This is what requires real strength, real heart, to never falter in the face of relentless defeat, or at least the absence of absolute victory. Harry musters the courage, tired though he is, to ask for more details, more truth. What he's owed, he feels. The truth, Dumbledore sighed, it's a beautiful and terrible thing and should therefore be treated with great caution. However, however, and however is doing some incredible heavy lifting here for my guy Dumbledore. However, I shall answer your questions unless I have a very good reason not to, in which case I'll beg you to forgive me. And I will beg you to forgive me much, much later in the series. I shall not, of course, lie. I will just, by the way, omit much information. And this is a fateful moment in the series. Harry continues. Well, Voldemort said that he only killed my mother because she tried to stop him from killing me, but why would he want to kill me in the first place? And Dumbledore sighed very deeply this time. Alas, the first thing you ask me, I cannot tell you. <laughs> oh, how about that? Not today. Not now. You will know one day. Put it from your mind for now, Harry. Just that small little detail of the Dark Lord killing your parents. Put that away from you. Let's not discuss that now. When you're older, I know you hate to hear this, when you're ready. You will know. The prophecy, Voldemort marking Harry as his equal, neither can live while the other survives. Would Harry have had the courage to hear this here and now? Did Dumbledore perhaps underestimate him? Did Dumbledore have other reasons for withholding this information that has nothing to do with those things? He'll explain in order that he didn't want to add to Harry's burden that he cared too much. Is that courage or cowardice? Is that even true? Are they always diametrically opposed, courage and cowardice? Was this the right choice? It's our choices, Dumbledore will tell us time and again, and yet he has made some truly questionable ones. And 
Harry doesn't push the issue, at least in this moment, but he does go on to ask why Quirrell couldn't touch him. Dumbledore, quote, Your mother died to save you. If there is one thing Voldemort cannot understand, it is love. Here's another defining theme of the story. He didn't realize that love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign, to have been loved so deeply, even though the person who loved us is gone, will give us some protection forever. It is in your very skin. Quirrell, full of hatred, greed, and ambition, sharing his soul with Voldemort, could not touch you for this reason. It was agony to touch a person marked by something so good. In other words, by Lily's courage, by Lily's love. Lily's protection is courage given form. And there's this beautiful description. Dumbledore now became very interested in a bird out on the windowsill, which gave Harry time to dry his eyes on the sheet. This is one of the scenes, one of the exchanges I always think about when people kind of try to hand wave the story in the earlier books in particular as, you know, oh, these are kids' books. There's not enough here. There's not enough depth. I mean, this moment, this conversation is literally about the fate of our lives, the fate of the world, the love, the choices that save us or undo us. If that's not enough for you, I'm sorry. I don't really know what to tell you. And this is just such a crucial exchange. Voldemort shared with Harry, offered up, this vital information about Lily not needing to have died. And that is significant because the fact that Voldemort is sharing it tells us that he doesn't understand what it represents. He doesn't realize that her sacrifice is vital. He cannot see, he cannot understand the power of such an act, of such selfless courage. Harry learns some more about his parents, including that it was Dumbledore that gave him his father's cloak. Quote, useful things. Your father used it mainly for sneaking off to the kitchens to steal food when he was there. Check your secret passages, my dude. And that part of why Snape hates James so much is that James once saved his life. We'll learn more about that later. Dumbledore does not tell Harry anything about Snape's relationship with Lily, the driving force behind Snape's decision to protect Harry from the book again. Funny the way people's minds work, isn't it? Professor Snape couldn't bear being in your father's debt. I do believe he worked so hard to protect you this year because he felt that would make him and your father even. Then he could go back to hating your father's memory in peace. This is unquestionably a lie. Flat out. The thing that he said he would not do. Or at least only part of the truth. Not even really part of the truth. This is a lie. Flat lie. Dumbledore <laughs> respects the courage Snape has displayed enough to honor his wish for secrecy, but he also just told Harry he wouldn't lie, and he just did. <laughs> Dumbledore, part wizard, part walking contradiction. When Ron and Hermione go to visit Harry, they catch up, and there's this great moment when they're telling Harry what happened after they fled the dungeons, and Hermione says of running into Dumbledore, quote, we met him in the entrance hall. He already knew. He just said, Harry's gone after him, hasn't he? And hurtled off to the third floor. Dumbledore never doubted Harry's courage. This is both a remarkable testament to what Dumbledore thinks of Harry and the kind of certainty that will allow Dumbledore to make the kinds of endgame choices that he makes because he never doubts that Harry will be willing to sacrifice himself. This scene continues with Ron and Hermione and Harry. I reckon he had a pretty good idea we were going to try. And instead of stopping us, he taught us just enough to help. I don't think it was an accident he let me find out how the mirror worked. It's almost like he thought I had the right to face Voldemort if I could. There's a lot there about, first of all, the nature of Dumbledore and Harry's relationship and the kind of trust and faith they place in each other, and also about free will and choice and guidance and advisors and who you can trust and when, you know, truth and lies, negligence, manipulation, courage. 
Hagrid visits the next day lamenting his drinking and stupidity and also the fact that my guy should not be entrusted literally with anything. I love when he's like, I should be made to live with muggles. This fucking guy is truly unbelievable. Hagrid, muggles have alcohol too. When Hagrid tells Harry not to say Voldy's name, Harry shouts it. He's not giving into fear now that he's seen what he's facing. He's touched it. He's been in the same room with it. He's finding his courage even more. He's faced it. He lived. I've met him and I'm calling him by his name. Hagrid gives Harry a present from the book. It was full of wizarding photographs, smiling and waving at him from every page, where his mother and father. Hagrid says he sent off owls to all their school friends. Knew you didn't have any. You like it? Harry couldn't speak, but Hagrid understood. This is the kind of love that fuels Harry and allows him to continue fighting bravely to protect the people he cares about. Harry couldn't speak, but Hagrid understood has always been one of the absolute 100% success rate tearjerkers for me. Farewell feast time. Dumbledore reads the House Cup point totals, and no surprise to anyone, given McGallion's reckless point shedding. So you think McGonagall's shaving points? Listen. You think that's what she's doing? Listen, she's, yes. (laughs) (laughs) She got a little lesson, went to Axe Capital, tried to understand the short play of the long play, how to manipulate the market. Gryffindor is in last, Slytherin in first, about to win its seventh straight cup. However... Dumbledore says, dun, dun, dun. Recent events must be taken into account. <clears throat> I have a few last-minute points to dish out. Of course, because there's no regulation here in the Hogwarts House Cup point system. He hands out 50 to Ron for the best-played game. Doesn't make any sense. Come on. Quote, best-played game of chess Hogwarts has seen in many years. Hermione, 50 for, quote, the use of cool logic in the face of fire. Harry, who literally survived an encounter with Voldemort, 60, only 10 more than Ron got for playing chess and Hermione got for reading a riddle. Quote, for pure nerve and outstanding courage. Ah, they're tied for the House Cup. How convenient. And then, quote, there are all kinds of courage, said Dumbledore, smiling. It takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to our enemies, but just as much to stand up to our friends. I therefore award 10 points to Mr. Neville Longbottom. And this is, this is a beautiful moment. First of all, Dumbledore's line here about Neville needing to find the courage to stand up to his friends and that being as hard as standing up to our enemies, we know now rings personally true for Dumbledore given what it took for him to stand up to Grindelwald. And then, of course, there is just the crucial truth at the heart of what Dumbledore is saying here. There are all kinds of courage. And this is a great lesson for the characters in the story and for readers everywhere. Nobody can tell you what your courage looks like. You get to find it within you, whatever form it may take. You know, Mal, the stone was really not such a wonderful thing, except for the everlasting life and (laughs) riches. (laughs) Sounds pretty good. Other than that. It wasn't really that great. (laughs) So chill with the FOMO. As much money and life as you could want. Listen, not great. The two things most human beings would choose above all. The trouble is humans do have a knack of choosing precisely those things that are worst for them. So tell us about the thing that's worst for them. Toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about Nikki Flames (laughs) and the Sorcerer's Stone. The Sorcerer's Stone, extremely haggard in the Sorcerer's Stone movie voice. First, and understand this because it's very important, not all name changes are good. Some of them are bad. A few years ago, one went as bad as you could go. 
In its birthland, the United Kingdom, Harry's inaugural adventure is known by the title Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Not here in the States, where publishing house Scholastic reportedly worried that American children would be less inclined to read a book with the word philosopher in the title, thinking, perish the thought that it might actually be a book about the discipline that philosophers study. Quote, if you think about marketing a book, Arthur Levine, JKR's American editor, told our pal Melissa Nelly in 2006, it is possible that someone hears Philosopher's Stone and thinks it's a book about philosophy. Side note for all of you listening to this, if you have not read Melissa's masterful Harry history and read and listened to all of her other indispensable Harry work, please do so. She is a legend. Levine wanted the title to sound more magical. Okay, enter the sorcerer. Now, if the stone were fully J.K. Rowling's invention, this logic might track. To be clear, we want to be very clear here, no shade at Arthur. He is a central figure in Harry's rise. We all owe him a lot of joy and splendor. But the Philosopher's Stone isn't J.K.R.'s creation. It's real, or at least the quest for it is. The stone is the alchemist's holy grail, a legendary substance that can, among other properties, turn base metals into gold or silver, heal, and sustain life. Depending on the account, the stone either produces or itself actually is the elixir of life, which can make the consumer immortal. This, of course, is why Vapormort wanted the stone and how the homie Nicholas Flamel was still kicking well into his 600s. The quest to create the stone is called the Great Work, or magnum opus. And stories about the all-consuming aspiration to produce it trace back to the Renaissance, the Middle Ages, even ancient Greece. It's no accident that the Sorcerer's Stone movie prop is a luscious candy apple red. Alchemists, who may also have been Gryffindor fans, who can say, placed premium importance on the stone's hue, believing that generating this redness, or rubido in Latin, was the final stage in its production. Flamel, by the way, was an actual dude, a French scribe, businessman, and philanthropist. Flamel also dabbled in alchemy, and rumors swirled that he successfully created the Philosopher's Stone and that he and his wife, Perenelle, achieved immortality. Note, in particular, the French part in that bio. Flamel lived and worked in Paris, where we know at least some of the upcoming film Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, takes place. On the recently released cover art for the crime's screenplay, the initials NF appear, as does an illustration of a stone. Now, this could be any number of things, but it is not unreasonable to deduce that it is one of the stones that's already central to the Harryverse, either the Resurrection Stone, because we know that the Hallows have been key in the film's marketing, or perhaps the Philosopher's Stone. Might we be seeing more of Flamel in the Wizarding World come November? If so, it would be the latest in a long line of Flamel appearances in works of popular culture, ranging from Victor Hugo's The Hunchback of Notre Dame to your favorite beach read, The Da Vinci Code. Whether or not Flamel actually created the stone, the myriad pursuits for it were very real. Also, though JKR has explicitly stated that the Masonic symbol in the film the Man Who Would Be King inspired her design for the Sign of the Deathly Hallows, it's worth at least observing that the Hallows symbol also bears some similarities to the squared circle, which illustrates the four elements of matter in the stone. The elements in the stone are nothing compared to the elements the stone produces, however. As Dumbledore tells Harry, you know, the stone was really not such a wonderful thing. As much money in life as you could want, the two things most human beings would choose above all. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> the trouble is, humans do have a knack of choosing precisely those things that are worst for them. 
This is both a brilliant insight into human nature and, though we don't know it at the time Dumbledore says it, a subtle but crucial early insight into Dumbledore's own mind and heart and past. Sometimes, maybe, the greatest work is knowing when to walk away. Jason? Yeah. Always the innocent are the first victims. Terrible. And today, some innocent nuggets will fall victim to our runtime. But until then, let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from these final chapters. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. Number one, Malfoy. When tasked with walking into the Forbidden Forest, I thought we'd be copying lines or something. Four books from now, under the tutelage of the awful, truly villainous Dolores Umbridge, this will be the de facto punishment during detention. Having the black quill, writing with it, I must not tell lies, and having that scraped into the back of your hand. Number two, consider the way that Harry describes seeing the unicorn. Quote, something bright white was gleaming on the ground. They inched closer. It was the unicorn, all right, and it was dead. Harry had never seen anything so beautiful and sad. Its long, slender legs were stuck out at odd angles where it had fallen, and its mane was spread pearly white on the dark leaves, end quote. This is somewhat reminiscent of how Harry describes seeing Dumbledore's body below the astronomy tower in Half-Blood Prince. And that kind of parallel description, linking Dumbledore with this beautiful, powerful, magical being, obviously not an accident. Number three, Dumbledore question. Why, if he knew as much as he did, did he go to the ministry? This is a fantastic question. And also, why in that way? Why not apparate? Why fly? Right. He received an urgent owl from the Ministry of Magic and flew off for London at once, said the book. This is odd, right? Why not apparate? Why not take the flu network? Number four. This is a great Professor Minerva Megalian quote here when she is lecturing, ridiculing the students for being out of bed. Quote, I'm disgusted, said Professor McGonagall. Four students out of bed in one night. I've never heard of such a thing before. Just want to note that this is a ludicrous thing for any Hogwarts yes. professor to say, given the fact that the Marauders, four students, were routinely out of bed at night, illegally transforming into anime guy, taking secret passages into the Shrieking Shack all over the grounds, Hogsmeade, discovering enough through such rampant exploration that they were able to create the Marauders map. It is really incredible to think about how ignorant all of the Hogwarts professors were about what James and Sirius and Lupin and Pettigrew were up to during their years at school. Number five. Centaur for sure. I love the centaurs, man. Hagrid on the centaurs. Keep to themselves mostly. Not if they're pushed. And by the way, some of them don't. Some of them will join our human compatriots, our wizard compatriots. And B, the more future centaur trouble foreshadowing, Ronan and Bane show up and are outraged that Ferenz has a human on his back. Bane says, have you no shame? Are you a common mule? By the time Umbridge enters their mists, they will be much more furious at human interference and they will take it out in quite delicious ways on our villainous Dolores Umbridge. Number six. I like this passage here. Quote, Hermione always liked to go through their exam papers afterward, but Ron said this made him feel ill. So they wandered down to the lake and flopped under a tree. The Weasley twins and Lee Jordan were tickling the tentacles of a giant squid, which was basking in the warm shallows. This is really similar to the post-OWL exam scene that Harry sees when he goes into Snape's memory in the Order of the Phoenix chapter, Snape's Worst Memory. 
Quote, they stopped in the shade of the very same beech tree on the very edge of the lake where Harry, Ron, and Hermione had spent a Sunday finishing their homework and threw themselves down on the grass. This is a not an uncommon position for our characters or any Hogwarts students to find themselves in, but there's something just really nice about the parallelism here across generations and how these characters behaved and acted. And this is, of course, both a good thing because the ties that bind us and our shared history are a source of strength. And also, it's always something where you have to ask yourself, well, how much do we ever really change or learn or grow? And number seven. It's not that unusual. You get a lot of funny folk in the Hogshead. That's one of the pubs down in the village. First Hogshead reference. Love a good Hogshead nod. <laughs> also, Haggard, my guy, just stop talking <laughs> all the time. Stop drinking, stop talking, stop talking when sober, and stop talking when drinking. Mal. Yeah. As I understand it, the house cup there needs a warding. And the points stand as follows. In fourth place, Gryffindor with 312 points. In third, Hufflepuff with 352 points. Ravenclaw, 426. And Slytherin, 472. However, 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 <laughs> recent events must be taken into account. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or creature that compelled us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points. Oh, those last-minute points. Love those last-minute points. Love them. And awarding the House Cup to Harry Potter. Back-to-back wins here My for guy. our dude, stacking up the victory. Very quickly first here, the case for Neville, who does deserve credit for standing up to the trio and for showing real backbone for one of the first times in his life. Earlier, he shows backbone, of course, by trying to warn them about Malfoy, but then that could have been his undoing, and it isn't. He finds even more strength moving forward. And even though his attempt is in vain, it ultimately leads to the Gryffindor House Cup victory and to a shout-out from Dumbledore, which is... Pretty good stuff for the, uh, spoiler alert, almost chosen one. But the case for yes. Harry, the actual Now winner. let's continue with Harry. Harry's doggedness uncovers the plot to steal the stone. He puts two and two together and realizes, hey, pretty convenient that Hagrid came by a dragon egg, only the thing he wants perhaps most in the world at the very same time as a highly prized magical object is being safeguarded at the school. Aha! He also discovers that Hagrid, while being all heart and 50% giant, is also at least 80% mouth. He uses his fastest snitch catch in recent memory skills to snatch the flying key in Professor Flitwick's obstacle chamber. And because he wanted to find the stone but not use it, not use it, crucial, he's able to release the stone from the mirror of Erised. And he crucially, quite helped, crucially, helped, defeats Quirrell. He defeats Voldemort in some form, at least. And with a timely save from Dumbledore, he saves the day and lives and discovers the protective charm that his mother's sacrifice allows to live in his very skin. He also, the importance of this cannot be overstated. It cannot. Gets a ton of candy from his it's friends So and much candy. <laughs> and a toilet seat from Fred and George. How do these kids have teeth? Or like, by any sort of hygiene. <laughs> when they, they go into like the fourth and fifth year. All, all Harry eats is fucking candy day and night. Honestly, that's kind of my diet. <laughs> kind of my diet. I hope they have good dental care there. I definitely do not here. That's more on me then. That's yeah. not a shot at Ringer Insurance. That's just I haven't found a dentist I like, to be clear. Harry got 60 points. House Cup. Save the day. What a time for our young man. It's Proud great to be Harry. Proud of him too. All right, friends. The truth is a beautiful and terrible thing and should therefore be treated with Great caution. Huge thanks, as always, to our producer, Isaac Lee, and researcher, Zach Cram, who go through the trap door with us every single day. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey. 
and that you will join us again tomorrow when we will be discussing the film adaptation of Sorcerer's Stone. Until then, remember, to the well-organized podcast, (laughs) death is but the next great adventure. Our runtime, that is a beautiful and terrible thing and should therefore be treated with great caution. However, I shall keep our podcast circumspect unless I have a very good reason to go over time, in which case I beg you to forgive me. I shall not, of course, go over time. Is there any way you could cut the podcast down? Alas, the first thing you ask of me, (laughs) I cannot do. Not today. Not now. One day. Put it from your mind now, Isaac. <laughs> when you are older, perhaps, I know you hate to hear this, when you're ready, we will keep it short. I'm 23 years old. 